Good morning, I'm glad to celebrate this Easter Resurrection Sunday with you. I wish that we could be together in person, but I'm looking forward nonetheless to you celebrating in your homes and for all of us at the same time worshiping Jesus and offering our prayers to God and acknowledging His greatness. Uh, I'd like to let you know that starting next Sunday, we're beginning a new series that we're calling Living in Exile, which seems appropriate given this ongoing stay-at-home policy that we're living under. And so we're going to learn from some of the lessons of uh, some of the people in the Old Testament Scriptures and a little bit in the New Testament Scriptures who lived in periods of exile before us. Right now, let's pray, and then we'll walk into this morning's message. Father God, thank you for sending Jesus. Thank you that the story all comes together as we see the events of the cross and the tomb and the resurrection. Thank you for demonstrating your power over sin and death by lifting up Jesus and raising him from from that tomb at the beginning of the third day after he had died on that cross. Thank you for taking away our sins. Thank you for offering us a freedom, a spiritual freedom, a, a personal freedom, a relational freedom that allows us to make the most out of life. Lord, I pray for our entire congregation all around the South Shore and those who are joining us from other states who've moved away but have reconnected through this online format. And I pray that you will allow us to carry your testimony into every corner of the world that we're in, allow us to influence other people and not be held back even by the confines that we're living with right now. Lord, we pray for those who are are medical people, nurses and doctors and surge techs and others who are working in hospitals and who are literally putting their, their health on the line every day. We pray that you'll strengthen them, that you'll give them courage. We pray that you'll give them faith and hope. We pray for the police and fire and EMTs who are also working hard during this time. And we ask that you will bless them. We ask that you will reward them. We ask that you will make them effective. Lord, we pray for our nation, for our president, for our vice president, for all the people who are making decisions about health and and social welfare at this time. We pray that you'd give them tremendous insight and wisdom and allow them to work together as one team, the scientists, the medical people, the politicians. And we know that this almost never happens, but let it happen now, Lord, for the good of all. We pray to you as the, the God who stands above creation, and we ask that you would pour out your mercy into our world and into our nation, and that you would lift this plague that has held us down and held us back. We pray for those who are suffering, that as they reach out, that they would find you, and they would find your comfort and your grace and your strength. Guide us now on this morning as we look into the Scriptures and and specifically in Mark chapter 16 that teach us about the resurrection of Jesus. It's in Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. A young mom was questioning a group of kindergartners about the Bible's creation story, and she asked them a couple of questions. What did God make on the first day? And what did did God make on the second day? And this group of kindergartners answered well. They answered correctly. They told her that uh, God had separated darkness from light on the first day and he'd separated the waters from the sky on the second day. Encouraged by that, the, the young woman then asked them, and what happened on the third day? 
And one little boy, beaming with enthusiasm, immediately called out, on the third day God rose from the dead. While that child's answer was not the right answer for that particular discussion about creation, it was the right answer when we're talking about the death and resurrection of Jesus. We're gathering online this morning to celebrate the most life-changing event in history that on the third day after Jesus had died on the cross, he rose from the dead, conquered the power of sin and death forever, and has the ability to offer you and me a kind of hope and new life that is absolutely transformative. Welcome to Easter Sunday celebration here at North River Community Church. We are celebrating wherever you are. And the people of North River have been building toward this day for 15 weeks now since the opening week of January. Our journey with Jesus has taken us all the way through the Gospel of Mark, looking at one chapter each week. As I was thinking about Easter in the year 2020, it seems that we are approaching Easter in the context of a great fear that is all around us. Have you noticed the spirit of fear that is around you and around the conversations of the people who are in in your lives too? This fear seems to show up in a number of ways. The fear of COVID-19, fear of a destroyed economy, fear of lost jobs, the fear of giving the virus to somebody else. I happened to be in the hospital a few weeks ago for an afternoon, and it was amazing how everybody was gowned up and masked up, and there were, there were no visitors anywhere, nobody but patients, and the fear was all around that place. We're also dealing with a fear of squandering this season of isolation, and a fear of wondering if God is trying to teach us something. There was one European university professor who found in a search that he did that the word prayer uh, was skyrocketing in the number of internet searches that were going on. And there's also a fear that we're living with of not knowing what comes next. When will we go back to school? When When will we go back to work? When will things snap back to the way they were? Will they ever snap back to the way they were? That observation about fear matches up with something I had not seen until a few weeks ago as I was reading through Mark's account of the resurrection of Jesus. The first Easter Sunday was cloaked with an atmosphere of fear. Let me walk you through some of the fears of the first Easter. First, there was the trauma over Jesus' death. Mark 15, 37 says, With a loud cry, he breathed his last. The disciples and friends of Jesus had watched him suffer and die on that cross. According to the Bible, there is no doubt that Jesus died. A Roman centurion certifies to Pilate, the Roman governor, that Jesus was dead. Then Pilate officially gives permission to Joseph of Arimathea, a wealthy man from Jerusalem, to take down Jesus' body. He wouldn't have done that unless he was also acknowledging that Jesus was completely dead. The Gospel of John places John at the scene of the cross along with Jesus' mother, Mary. And here Mark records that Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the Younger and Joseph, and Salome, the wife of Zebedee, the mother of James and John, was also there, and they all testified to the death of Jesus. Now, there's also no doubt among ancient non-biblical historians that Jesus' death was real. Tacitus, writing in A.D. 16, wrote of Christus, who underwent the extreme penalty under the hands of Pontius Pilate. And yet, 
his movement grew and spread even after his death going all the way to Rome. There are several other historians. I'm not going to bore you with all of those details, but let me quote one. Josephus, who was a general in the Jewish army, who later on defected to the Romans, and he wrote a history of the antiquities of the Jewish people. This is part of what he wrote in that volume. Quote, Now around this time lived Jesus, a wise man, for he was a worker of amazing deeds and was a teacher of people who gladly accepted the truth. He won over both many Jews and many Greeks. Pilate, when he heard him accused by the leading men among us, condemned him to the cross. But those who had first loved him did not cease doing so. To this day, the tribe of Christians named after him has not disappeared, unquote. So we find that there was the trauma over Jesus' death that they were dealing with. There was also grief over his loss. So Mark 16, verse 1, begins with this thought. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go anoint Jesus' body. The burial of Jesus had taken place so quickly that there was very little time for anyone to grieve properly. Joseph of Arimathea, a wealthy Pharisee, had asked to bury Jesus before sundown. He wanted to do that before the Sabbath would start at sundown when the Jewish people were to do no work. So there was no time for the women who cared about Jesus to tend to his body and put on all the finishing touches that women would give rather than men. Joseph and Nicodemus had hastily wrapped Jesus' body. They'd bought some spices and they had wrapped his body with those spices. But now Mary Magdalene and this group of women had bought more spices on Saturday night after the Sabbath ended, and early on Sunday morning, they were coming down to the tomb to add these spices. Either there was a sense that more spices were needed, or that guys couldn't possibly get this, this right, and that the grave of Jesus needed a woman's touch. They were not doing this to preserve the body of Jesus. They expected that the body would stink, already entering the third day of his death and so more spices were called for. Along with this grief was also a concern about moving the stone. Verse three says, and they asked each other, who will roll away the stone from the entrance to the tomb? Matthew and Mark each describe the tomb. They describe it as a, as a tomb cut out of rock, and they rolled a large stone over the, off, over the opening. Luke adds that it was a new tomb, that no one had ever been laid in this particular tomb before. Bible commentaries tell us that, that the stone would have been extremely large, perhaps weighing as much as two tons. They would roll the stone down a slight incline, and then it would fall into a rut right before the opening, making it extremely difficult to move the stone once it was set in place. And because of concerns that some of the religious leaders had, the Romans had decided that they would also seal the tomb, which meant that there was a large piece of wax that was melted onto the tomb in such a way that if you broke the seal, it would be obvious that somebody had interfered. So we wonder, what were the women thinking as they made their way to the tomb? How would they even get in there unless somebody were to help them, one of the soldiers or somebody else, and it might have taken several soldiers even to open to open the tomb just a crack in order to allow them in. A fourth kind of fear that they were dealing with had to do with getting past the guard. 
In verse 65 of chapter 16, Pilate said, Take a guard, go make the tomb as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting a guard. The guard was posted because Jesus had declared that after three days he would rise. Even if his disciples didn't understand that and weren't fully expecting that, the Pharisees were concerned. And so they told Pilate that they were concerned that Jesus' disciples might come and steal away the body and then make up a story that somehow Jesus had come through in his promise and he'd risen from the dead. Matthew's report reveals that even Jesus' opponents remembered his promise. So there was a detail of guards taking turns standing in front of the tomb where Jesus had been laid down. And these women were rightfully wondering, how could they bring their spices into that tomb? How would they get past the guards? Would the guards, would the guards be an obstacle or would the guards help them? Notice the terms that were used to describe their feelings and their emotional state on that first Easter morning. Verse 5 in chapter 15 says that they were alarmed. Chapter 16, verse 8 says that they were trembling and bewildered, and the women went out of the tomb and they fled. And then the same verse says that they were afraid. Alarmed, trembling, bewildered, running away, and afraid. And then add to these fears a handful of Easter surprises. When they arrived, they find that someone had already rolled away the stone. And then as they got in a little bit closer, they found that there was a stranger sitting there inside the tomb. They had no idea at first who this was. And third, they found that Jesus was no longer there. So I want to raise a question. How did these women move from fear, trauma, and concern and alarm to faith, believing that Jesus had risen from the dead? And how did the disciples who'd run away during the trial, who'd scattered all but John were gone from that scene, how did they come and move from this fear, trauma, concern, and alarm to faith? We're going to examine that pathway over the next few minutes, and you will see that the pathway is still there for us today. And I'm going to give you an opportunity to turn to Jesus and away from fear what is involved in the pathway from fear to faith. Well, first is the empty tomb. This was the evidence that they could see and evaluate. So verse four of chapter 16 says that, but when they looked up, they saw that the stone which had been very large had been rolled away. The first discovery, the first surprise for them was the stone had already been moved and the guards were gone. Matthew records that an earthquake shook that area and an angel appeared. And the angel had rolled away the stone. And the Roman guards were so afraid, either from the earthquake or the presence of an angel or both, that it says they became like dead men. They fell on the ground and they pretended they were dead. Matthew also records that later these same guards were paid off in order to keep their silence. And then inside the tomb, the body was not there. The empty tomb still contained the strips of linen that had been wrapped around Jesus and they were laying there in the area where Jesus' body had been resting. Verse 12 in Luke's Gospel, chapter 24, tells us this. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves and he went away, 
wondering to himself what had happened. Both Mark and John mentioned these strips of linen that were example. They were part of the evidence. This is a key detail. It means that Jesus' wrapped body had not been taken away. Instead, the living Jesus, as he rose up, had discarded these strips of linen and the cloth that wrapped his head, and they were lying there where he had discarded them. They were of no use to someone who was alive. They were only of use to someone who was dead. The second factor was the angel's announcement. This was an explanation from on high that they could consider, a divine explanation, if you will. In verse 5 of Mark 16, we read these words. As they entered, em, as they entered the tomb, they, the women, saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You're looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. Now take this in for a moment. No human eye had witnessed the event of the resurrection itself. But angels are constantly in the presence of God and sometimes are employed to announce something dramatic that God was doing that affects the human race. They testified to God's greatness. So it seems appropriate that an angel announces that Jesus had risen. This angel seems to be a little slow to understand human things. He tells the women not to be alarmed when they already were alarmed. Men who are married, how does that work for you? And your wife is concerned and she's alarmed and you say, oh, honey, don't be alarmed. Does that automatically change things? I don't think so. I almost wonder if that's a little bit of the humor that's built into the story. Angels had come to announce Jesus' birth. Why wouldn't they also come to announce that Jesus had completed his mission, that he had conquered death, that he'd conquered sin, that he'd risen from the grave? Now Mark reports about one angel, some of the, author, the other Gospels report two angels. These different memories and viewpoints actually add to the credibility of the reports. Detectives at crime scenes expect there to be slight variations in eyewitness testimony. In fact, if the stories match in every single detail, they assume that the witnesses got together and made their story align in every possible way and that they falsify things. It actually lends more to the credibility of the story that there are slight details that are different in what they remember. It's not a big deal that one remembers one and, and another remembers two angels. There was at least one at all times, probably two. The angel offers the only explanation then that makes sense. Jesus was no longer dead. He had risen as he said he would. He doesn't make up something new he brings back what Jesus had been telling them all along. The third factor in this pathway, along with the empty tomb and the angel's announcement, is remembering Jesus' words. These were words, these were things that they could ponder and think about. Luke 24, verses 6 through 8, read this way. He is not here, he has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee. The Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. And then Luke writes, Then they remembered his words. Mark recorded three times when Jesus told his disciples in advance what was coming their way. 
In chapter 8, right after Peter confessed that Jesus is the Christ, he warned them that the Son of Man had to be handed over and he would be killed, but he would rise on the third day. In Mark chapter 9, he says the same thing, that the Son of Man will be killed, and after three days he will rise. In Mark chapter 10, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem toward the Passover with his disciples. And there again, he says, they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. So this should have been no secret. Jesus told them he would be killed and rise on the third day because he wanted to prepare them to be able to believe when, when Easter's resurrection finally came through, when it finally came true. Part of the pathway from fear to faith is examining Jesus' words and promises closely. He wanted us to know. And then there's a fourth factor, encountering the risen Jesus. These were encounters that they would never forget. So Mark chapter 16 and verses 9 through 11 add a little bit more detail to the story. When Jesus rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene. Then verse 10 goes on to say, she went and told those who had been with him who were mourning and weeping. And when they heard that Jesus was alive and that she had seen him, they did not believe it. So put these details together. Jesus appeared first to Mary Magdalene. All four Gospels report that that Jesus appeared and spoke to Mary and a group of women. This is interesting because people in that day did not consider the testimony of women to be credible, especially in the Roman court system. Women were not allowed to speak. They were considered to be unreliable and too emotional. Now think about it. If the gospel writers were going to make up a fictitious story that would convince thousands and maybe millions of people in other cultures, especially in that first century culture, they would not have deliberately chosen to have a woman be the first one to discover the resurrection of Jesus. A cleaned up, made up report would not have been written this way in order to convince the masses. But Jesus was far ahead of his time. He wanted men and women to become his followers in that century and in that place and all over the world and all throughout time. Men and women both. So it's interesting that by the end of that day, not only had Peter and John seen the evidence But Jesus had also appeared to a group of the disciples as he had appeared to these women and he kept on making appearances to them to more than 500 people over the next 40 days. Jesus would show up and reveal himself. So Jesus later appeared to his disciples in Jerusalem. They were overjoyed at seeing and hearing Jesus. This crystallized their faith even beyond the evidence that they could see without Jesus being in the room. He appeared a third time to the disciples when Thomas was with them. Thomas had said he wouldn't believe these things unless he could see Jesus' wounds and he could touch them himself. And then Jesus shows up and he calls out to Thomas and he says, see here, look at my wounds. Touch my hands, touch my side. Thomas doesn't need to. He sees the evidence with his own eyes and he falls on his knees and he calls out, my Lord and my God. And then Jesus met them on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, the place where he restored Peter to the gospel ministry. 
He taught them several times over the next 40 days before he ascended to the heavens, and their lives were transformed from people who ran away from Jesus' arrest and denied knowing him like Peter to faith-filled leaders who brought God's good news of grace throughout the world, even at great risk to their own lives. When Jesus appeared to Thomas, he also said these words that impact us today, generations later. Jesus said, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who who have not seen and yet have believed. My friends, that's you and I. We can't see the exact same things that the disciples witnessed, that Mary Magdalene witnessed on that day, but we have their testimony, and we have the evidence of their changed lives and of the gospel impact wherever they went. And you and I are blessed when we take their stories and we take the evidence that we can examine in the scriptures, and we too put our faith in Jesus. Now here's the big idea that I'm trying to get across in this message. Examining the words of Jesus and the evidence that he rose brings peace in the storm to those who trust him today. This is the pathway as we examine the words of Jesus and we examine the evidence that he rose. As we put our faith and trust in him, he brings peace in the midst of the storm to you and me, and he can do that for you today. Let me invite you to make a clear decision to place your trust in Jesus in the midst of the storm that is raging around us. I'd like you to repeat these words if you want to. The words are in the, in the notes that I printed out if, if you, if, that I had attached to this message. And you can find them uh, through one of the links on your screen. But repeat after me this thought. Dear God, I believe that you sent Jesus to deal with my sins and to lead me from fear to faith. Help me turn from my sin and pride and to turn toward Jesus as my Savior, my Advocate, and my Lord. Today, I am putting my trust in His promises. Now, if you pray to prayer or something like that, I want you to know that you have just begun the process of starting a whole new life that is fueled by the hope that his resurrection gives us. That you and I do not have to walk around constantly being afraid of all the mistakes that we make and of all the times that we've rebelled against God or even the times that we've been locked up in our own spiritual pride or the times when you've wandered away from the, child of your, of the faith of your childhood. He can set you free from all of that and he will as you grow in faith and knowledge and confidence. British scholar N.T. Wright put it this way, the message of Easter is that God's new world has been unveiled in Jesus Christ and that now you're invited to belong to it. And so you've heard the gospel and some of you have responded all around the South Shore and wherever you're listening. And I want you to know that we have every reason to live with hope and joy in the midst of every trial, in the midst of every storm. And you and I are going to continue to learn how to do that. Come on back next Sunday and join us as we talk about how we live in the midst of exile. That's our new series, Living in Exile. And we're going to unveil several principles that will guide us through this unprecedented time that we're going through. And if you have put your faith in Jesus, we have every advantage 
and every reason to have hope and joy and faith as we move forward. Let me close with this prayer. Father God, thank you for the way that you are carrying your gospel wider than ever before. Thank you that there are more people who are taking part in our service today as a result of this COVID-19 virus and the fact that we're doing this online than there would have been if we could have had normal services in our church building this week and if we'd done that only. Thank you that you are not limited by a virus. You are not limited by all of the ways that we are trying to shrink our lives down and simplify right now. That your gospel is the good news which gets out and which transforms people in every town, every city, every generation, and every century. And Lord, my prayer is that you will continue to strengthen and grow the fellowship of North River and surprise us in the same way that you surprised those members of the early church with the explosive power of this gospel of hope and joy and faith. We pray these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. I hope that you will continue to come back uh, as long as we are doing this and that uh, you'll sing along in this final song that we have here today. Thank you for spending your Easter morning with us.